This is the Tech Talk series, featuring episodes where I interview guests within the tech industry, and we dive into conversations about new technologies, best practices, technical advice, and all the pondering questions you have regarding software, STEM, and big data. Welcome to the Multi-Passionaire Podcast. My name is Olivia Martin, and this is episode 16 of the Multi-Passionaire. In today's episode, Jacqueline and I dive into the third episode of the Tech Talk series, specifically focusing on data science. Jacqueline got her bachelor's in engineering management in Germany and graduated from UC Berkeley with a master of engineering in industrial engineering and operations research with a focus in data analytics. She pursues her career as a data strategy lead at Palantir, and her last position was with Lyft. We're going to be talking about all things data science, artificial intelligence, data-driven analytics, and A-B testing. So I'm with Jacqueline, and we're going to kick off with a question I ask each guest, and it's the million-dollar question. So what's an idea or a passion that you've had and you've always wanted to embark on and create, but you haven't done so yet? That's a very good question. I think if I would have to pick one thing, it's that I definitely want to create something on my own in the future. If it's like building my own company or or building a product, but really something that I can call my own, I've always dreamed of. So that's definitely something I um, haven't really done yet. I kind of started it with my Instagram channel, and I think it's like a very first good step. But definitely in the next few years, that's something I would love to love to do and maybe like found a company or start building an app and do something that I can really say I, I created. Yeah, that's really exciting. What do you think your application or if you made like a website or an, I don't know, what would you really like resonate with? I mean, there are a couple of things that I'm that I'm thinking about right now. I mean, my field is really like data. I'm um, familiar with data analytics, um, with, with machine learning, but also about like how different companies can leverage data and and use it. So I think the most natural thing to do would probably be in consulting or or build something around that. I I honestly don't know that. There are a lot of different fields that are interesting to me. I I think also like maybe building an app would be something that I I could think myself of of doing. And also another passion, actually, um, I, I just thought about or that just came to my mind as well is that I'm really passionate about politics and um, generally also social equality. So definitely like if I want to build something, it should impact the world in in a positive way. And so potentially building an app or a website or a service that um, really serves human, maybe women in tech um, could also be something that that I'm thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Those all sound super awesome. And it would be really great just to see you work on those in the future. What was the experience like getting your undergrad in Germany and coming to the U.S. to get your master's at Berkeley? Yeah, it was definitely, I, I've never planned to to go to the U.S. and do my master's there. I think that that's also pretty different from a lot of other international students who, who go to the U.S. For most people, it has been like a goal or a dream for their whole life. I think for me, it was more like a spontaneous thing, honestly, that's kind of happened along the way. Um, so yeah, as you said, I, I did my bachelor's and undergrad in Germany in engineering management. Um, and in Germany, we have a program. Um, I think it's very particular to, to Germany where you can basically like study and work at the same time. So you start studying with a company. Um, you, you basically yeah, get a salary each month. 
and you study typically for one semester. Then in the break in Germany, it's typically like three months break. You you work, then you do your next semester, you work and so on. And so I've done that with what I would call a very traditional German company, medium sized, and got my first experience there, specifically in product management and in software engineering. And so this is also how I got a little closer to kind of like technology topics. And um, it's definitely something that was really interesting to me. So I did my undergrad there. It was basically, yeah, a, a mixture of business and, and engineering, but nothing really data related yet. So that's also something that I definitely didn't plan for my whole life and kind of happened. In the last um, few semesters, it became clearer to me that I just wanted to try something else um, and maybe also live in another country just to get some other experiences. And so I was really open about what country it would be. I basically applied to a couple of European countries, um, Sweden, actually Denmark, um, the Netherlands, and also the US. I was super late though in applying for US universities because I didn't plan it from the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you, I mean, usually you probably know this better than, than I do, but you need to apply uh, fairly early when you compare it to European universities. Um, and so I was pretty late in the game. <laughs> I basically only had a couple of weeks to really? yeah, write all the recommendation letters, write those essays, um, do all the tests. But at this point, I was just like, okay, you know, you have nothing to lose. Just try it and then see what happens. And so I picked a couple of universities in industrial engineering because that was basically like it sounded very similar to what I was doing in my undergrad. And Berkeley was one of the universities that came up. Um, I also heard the name before, but I was not super familiar with the U.S. system, to be super honest. So I applied there and um, yeah, I got um, I got into it, which was very exciting to me. So I decided to study in Berkeley and only in Berkeley was when I really came closer to the data field. I, I took classes in analytics, um, in machine learning, but also in business. And that was that's also kind of like what I think is one common thing in my career that I always combine kind of like the business part with the technical part. So I wouldn't call myself like a super technical expert in all of those topics, but I'm really good at kind of like combining the more business heavy, product heavy part with really the, the technical statistics data part. And yeah, so got excited to be in that field and then also decided to stay in the U.S. and stay in, in the data analytics field. Yeah, that is just like a ton of information I really want to unpack. And I'm sure it was like a huge transition for you to kind of just, you're used to your life in Germany and then you moved to California to go to Berkeley. What were like the certain, I guess, like transitional aspects that were kind of difficult for you to like, I guess, get used to? Yeah, definitely. For me, it was also the case that I I honestly didn't know anyone in the U.S. So I, I didn't know anyone else who, who has gone to the U.S. and studied there. I know it's very common in, in some other countries that you know people that uh, do the same thing, but in, in Germany, um, your master's is typically for free. So going to the U.S. and paying a huge amount of money for a master's <laughs> was definitely like not, not the easiest decision. And also Germany's education system is quite good as well. Um, so it was definitely like more a decision about just experiencing another culture, experiencing living in another country, um, learning other, yeah, getting to know other people. That was kind of like the driving uh, motivation behind my move to the U.S. And yeah, so when I moved to the U.S., it was definitely like a lot of things were different. Like I, I didn't know anyone there. I kind of like needed to get adjusted to, to the culture 
And even though both cultures are Western, there are a lot of differences. Um, Germans typically tend to be like very reserved um, and not that friendly, uh, like <laughs> when you talk to them, honestly. Um, but on the other hand, they're very like direct. They're very honest. If you, for example, have a friend, a German friend, it's usually like a very close relationship. Right. And so in the U.S., there are basically like things very different. Like people are very, very friendly, very social, some other like social norms that I had to learn. But I, I didn't see it as like a burden. It was basically like one of the reasons why I came to the U.S. because I wanted to learn about those things and learn about other cultures. So it was definitely something I was more excited about than scared or, or annoyed of. Other than that, obviously, language was another thing um, that was tricky in the beginning. In Germany, most of the universities do courses in German. And so I learned everything in German before and had now to kind of like translate everything in, into English and, and learn English more. But yeah, all those things, I would say overall, definitely like a super positive experience where you can also like grow personally so much. So really, really appreciated it. Yeah. And it's just an awesome experience for you to kind of say like, yeah, I got my master's at Berkeley. And like Berkeley is a very prestigious school in like the U.S., especially for engineering. I'm really curious to hear about the courses that you really just underwent and what really like challenged your way of thinking. Are there certain classes that just really stuck with you and like were your most favorite ones? Yeah, maybe also a little bit about the program I've I've done at Berkeley. I basically done a one one year masters. Um so typically like masters are two years long, but I decided to do a one year long masters and it was also focused on not so much on like academia but really more focused on like a professional path. And that's also why a lot of courses, again, it's similar a little bit to, to my bachelor's. <laughs> we, we had a lot of kind of like technical heavy courses, but also on the other hand, they, they call it like mini MBA, but we basically took like courses on, on business, project management, communication, those kind of things. And that's also like what I really, really liked about that program, and I think is super, super important when you are looking for a job later on, especially in the data field, because communication is so important. I really appreciated that you learned things like data analytics, machine learning, statistics, and, and got the foundations for, for that from like a theoretical, technical perspective. But then also we had a lot of hands-on projects. You got a lot of like practical experience. We actually had like a capstone project for the whole year. And so you really learned not only to, to do those things in theory, but also how do you actually apply those things? How do you communicate it? How do you present? And so I think this combination really, really was important to me and helped me also in finding a job afterwards. Yeah. And I think that's a really like just great skill to have and like to learn that within the university because there are certain like gen eds we have to take that kind of make us more well-rounded but like you're saying when you actually apply that to the professional field it makes you a more like outstanding candidate whenever you're applying to jobs so that's really awesome your program was very focused on career but also technical yeah definitely so i guess a big question would be what made you choose data science i mean as i said i wish i i could say that I always dreamed about doing data science and, and this was something I always wanted to do. I think for me personally, it was just something I kind of like got into in through my journey. First of all, yeah, going, going to Berkeley, um, taking courses there that I, I thought were really interesting and then also find, finding a job in the field. 
Generally, there are a couple of things that really excite me about data science and also tech in general. I think data science is like super, super powerful. A lot of the technologies we're using right now are based on data science or, or machine learning. And also in the future, it will only become more. And so I, I think it's a very good field to have a lot of like growth opportunities as well. And also in a field where you have a lot of responsibility. And I also mean like in an ethical way, because a lot of algorithms and data science, it's really important that um, you have honestly like a woman in the room that <laughs> can also stand up for and, and making sure that things are developed in a way that it's not biased or at least less biased. And so that's, I think, the second motivation next to the opportunities and, and growth opportunities. It's really that I, I think this field is so powerful that I, I want to be involved and, and stand up for kind of like my community as a woman um, and in tech and make sure that my values are also represented in, in that area. Yeah. And like that kind of ties into like your purpose, like you want to have a purpose for social impact and to be a part of the technological change we're embarking on. Yeah. So I think that's really awesome. And I want to dive into like your career experience because I think that's just very interesting. And I think other people will think it's interesting as well. You worked at Lyft as a data scientist and you focused on user experience and experimentation and exploratory analysis. In your role, what was your day-to-day -day like? Exactly. I was a data scientist and in the product team focusing on users. So basically on people requesting a ride, taking a ride. My day to day was honestly pretty different from day to day. So it's uh, difficult to, to pick out like a, a typical day. But generally, I, my tasks working closely together with the product manager on, first of all, finding new opportunities. So what can we improve in the product? Like what is going wrong right now that we can make better or what, what do we see in the data that happens and, and we can improve? So really like finding those, those big opportunities in the data. So driven by data, not making products just because we, we think something is cool, um, but really looking, okay, here at this point in the app, we see that, I don't know, 80% of the people close this app. Maybe there, we should think about how, how to improve this. And so, yeah, it was first of all about finding those, those value buckets. The second thing I, I was doing is, basically then working together closely with designers and also engineers in implementing this feature. So does the data give us any insight into how we could build this feature and how, how we can make it successful? And then once this feature is built and, and scoped out, it's about how do we test if this feature or this product is successful? So basically thinking through how we can measure this, was it, what is like the success metric here? Is it how many people open the app? Is it how many people take a ride? There are like a lot of different things, how you can measure things. And I think it's especially awesome in two-sided marketplaces where you not only have the riders, but you also have the drivers and they influence each other along the way. So really thinking about, okay, how can we set up an A-B test or an exper experiment um, to measure this success metric? And so it's about thinking through and designing this. And then obviously, like once this feature is, is rolled out or being tested, analyzing the results and then making a decision whether do we want to roll out this feature or is it better to, to not do it? Yeah, so my day-to-day -day was really different depending on uh, what product I worked on, in, in what 
phase of the life cycle we were in. But generally, it was a lot of kind of like working together closely with different stakeholders, product managers, engineers, designers. So some meetings and then, of course, also some time analyzing data and um, creating visualization dashboards and, and so on. Yeah. And it's really cool, like hearing about your experience, like working on the application. So kind of just hearing about all the testing went into it, like what you've been working on and how it was implemented. It's just really interesting and kind of just seeing the vision and how it was executed. How did your position at Lyft differ from your current position at Palantir? My current position is is a little different. Actually, I still struggle to find a perfect title for this. <laughs> um, my, my official title is deployment strategist. But basically what I'm doing and, and what Palantir is doing is that they're having a data platform that enables, first of all, data integration, data analysis, machine learning, and really kind of like building up all the ecosystem that is related to data. And so I, as a deployment strategist or we also sometimes call ourselves like data strategy lead. We basically work with clients and organizations across the world on um, using, helping them to use our platform and implement use cases. So we really different organizations and, and companies from commercial companies to government organizations. And we, we are usually on site, of course, now during COVID times, a, a lot more virtual, but basically like helping them, okay, what problems do you currently have in your organization? How can we potentially solve them with data? Helping them to implement those use cases in, in our platform. So it's basically like a mixture of consulting, data science, uh, a little bit of product management, really a combination of these things. And also now after, after being two years at Palantir, I'm basically like leading a small team of um, three people. So obviously like some things also have changed by, by doing that uh, a little bit more like management responsibilities and, and a task as well. So I would say from, from Lyft to Palantir at the core, I'm still doing very similar things. I'm like using data. I'm trying to make decisions on data, but my day to day just looks a little different because Lyft was a B2C company so really working with millions of users and now at palantir it's a b2b uh, company where i work with maybe hundreds uh, of users but definitely not like millions so just like a different environment and different kind of working yeah but i think it's really interesting just hearing about you're working on an application that millions of people are using that's really cool i guess another question would be what are the tools you kind of utilize like day to day I think this also, of course, now changed a little bit with my job and my new role. So probably the things that we use at, at Palantir are not the typical things a data scientist would use at another company, just given that Palantir builds their own data platform. Um, and so obviously, like a lot of the tools that we use are just the Palantir tools. But generally, what was important uh, in both jobs, um, according to like languages and, and uh, is Python, like I'm, I'm using a lot of Python right now. Right. Um, Python was important when I when I worked at Lyft. And the second thing is SQL. I think those are basically like two things that really required in any data science job. The Python, obviously, there's a huge debate between R and Python. So I'm not going to into that right now. But yeah, having having the skills in, in those two languages definitely like very, very important and crucial. Other than that, um, it's also really valuable to have skills in any kind of BI tools. There are a large variety of, of different BI tools um, out there. 
there's Palantir, um, as like who also has some functionalities in that, Power BI, Tableau. It doesn't really matter like when you're, for example, in university, which one you learn, as long as you have the skills in, in, in one of them and can put this on your resume and also showcase. But I would say for, for me, those were like the two areas that in, in terms of like technical hard skills, I would recommend. Yeah, and Python is such like a powerful language and you can really use it for a ton of different like just use cases, applications, and there are so many things built on Python. So it's definitely like a great tool to have. So the focus of this episode is kind of focusing on the various facets of data science. And specifically, I want to dive into like AI and machine learning. I think 2020 sparked a lot within the terms of growth for AI, at least like self-driving cars and e-commerce use, and it kind of paved the way for 2021 advancements. How do you think AI will progress in terms of utilization within the next five years? I think AI is already like super important. And if we think about our day-to-day, like the apps we're using, the technologies we're using, it's really almost built into everything we're using. I mean, I'll just like take an example with, for example, Lyft ride sharing. It's based really on a lot of like machine learning algorithms, like how you get matched to your driver, all all those kind of things. Like if you open any app, like the things you will see on your front page are basically probably built on top of machine learning algorithms uh, to really, really show you the things that um, are most relevant to you. And so definitely, I think this will increase a lot in the future as well. And we will go into, yeah more exciting topics as well, like, as you said, self-driving cars that definitely will will enhance by, by using more data, collecting more data and, and using AI. I saw actually yeah, a robotics video a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's just amazing how, how much progress um, we're making in, in those areas as well. Um, so I think definitely in terms of like self-driving vehicles, maybe like flying cars, like those types of things, in the next five to 10 years, I, I expect a lot of changes in, in those areas from a techn- technology perspective. There's also always the, this other perspective, which is more political or, or like driven by the society, which is, do we, do we want those changes? Like how long will it take to get the right regulations in place and, and things like that? So those types of things are usually a little slower than the tech technology. And so I don't know like how, how long it'll take to move those things forward. But I think from a technological perspective, uh, we can see a lot of improvements and progress in, in the next years in, in AI. It's so ironic that you brought up the robotics because that was something I was going to talk about. Was it the Boston Dynamics video? Yeah, that you yeah saw? exactly. Yeah. It was so cool. Like I watched it yeah. a few times and I'm just like, wow, like we're here and like the future is just it's going to literally be like flying cars, I'm sure. It might take some time, but we'll be there. Yeah, definitely. In terms of like AI and machine learning, are there any projects that you've worked on that were like some of your favorites? So I personally haven't focused too much on AI and machine learning in my past jobs. And maybe that's also like a good opportunity to talk a little bit about, um, as you said, like the different flavors of, of data science. There are obviously like a lot of different flavors, but I think the two most two most common ones are like more machine learning AI heavy flavor, where you basically really focus on building an algorithm or, or building a model um, on, on top of an algorithm, improving that and, and then also deploying that potentially in, in production or hopefully in production. And then on the other side, there are the little more like 
generalist or business focused um, data scientists that are basically like help driving um, decisions in the business. They're, they might build, build dashboards, do some experimentation, less so build and model that goes into production or, or do a lot of like machine learning algorithms, but more so use data in terms of like uh, making decisions about the business. So how can we improve our strategy? How can we build a better product? Obviously, there are a lot more other archetypes of, of data scientists, um, some that are more like data engineering focused and so on. But so in my career, I haven't like basically deployed any machine learning models in production. I've used machine learning or, or clustering or, and, and other methods to make better decisions or to build better models on, for example, users or customers so that we better understand them. And so I don't have like any great examples for you right now on, on, in, in that regard, unfortunately. Yeah, but I mean, I definitely think what you kind of just the knowledge dump you gave is like really useful. And like you're saying, data science, it's just like computer science and just like programming and engineering. There's so many different routes you can take. So I want to dive into data analytics. If you were to describe it to someone or I guess someone who's not very technical, what would you describe data driven analytics to be? So data driven analytics for me is really that every decision you make as, as a business or as a company is based on, on some sort of data. When you hear this definition, it really doesn't sound impressive, but when you really look into most companies and especially most like more like traditional companies, this is like a new approach because traditionally most decisions have been made on intuition, based on intuition, based on maybe some previous experience, but only few decisions have been really made on, on a solid uh, data foundation. Uh, and so basically the, the new thing with like using analytics and, and being really data driven is trying to collect the right data to make those decisions based on that data in the future. So instead of, for example, saying, okay, we now build a new factory in a certain country because I don't know, those and those things, I, my intuition tells me and that's a good idea. You could really like analyze this and weigh different factors against each other and make a decision. Or also in product development, instead of just building a new feature because you personally think it's a good idea or you've heard from a couple of users this is a good idea, you can really like ask the data about this and, and see how users move through a certain application or website um, currently then make decisions based on this and then even test it. And this is super important. I mean, there are a lot of examples out there in the internet where IB tests have really proven you wrong in your intuition and people actually do things quite quite differently. And so to really be successful in, in your business and, and get better outcomes, being data-driven and using analytics is, is key. Yeah, so to tie that into like insights, why are insights so important and like companies use them to then implement new products? Honestly, for insights is only the first step though. Like you you need to get those insights to know uh, like see on a dashboard or on on a certain uh, in a certain tool like how how things are going, like how your business metric is performing, how different user groups are behaving, but what is even more important is that those insights are actionable. So it's not enough if you just like look at the dashboard every day and, and think, oh, nice, this graph is going up or oh, this is pretty. Like it, it only becomes relevant when you really look at the data and then know what to do with it or know what your decision is and, and what your action is. And so that's also generally something that I learned throughout uh, my first year in, in my career that 
it's not only enough to just build like nice visualizations or find nice insights. You also need to be able to action on them somehow because you can change a feature in the app because you can address, I don't know, other user groups like the really only insight that can lead you to that type of action, the most relevant ones. And I actually think that there are a lot of companies out there who are not that bad at this insight phase. Like they, they build pretty dashboards. Yeah, they might have the data somewhere in the company, but what they really struggle is getting this data-driven culture and making sure that people are actually like using the data, making decisions based on it and leveraging it. And so I think that part is, is even more important to, to make use of it. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, especially whenever you gather data, it's all about how you utilize what you gathered. If you don't really put it to use and kind of just put that towards your company to perform better progress and better advancements, then what's the point of being data-driven? So, Exactly. Yeah, and it's actually it's a, it's a thing we, we see in a lot of organizations where they just kind of like collect every everything that they <laughs> that they can and have a lot of data, but they don't really know what to do with it or what kind of questions to answer. And so you should really have in mind first, like, what things uh, do I really want to find out? Like, what's important to me? And then think about what kind of data should I collect to to get to this instead of just having a big kind of like data lake and some pretty dashboards, but no one is really um, using them. And that's also something, honestly, with uh, machine learning as well, where machine learning and AI, of course, is like super, super valuable for specific problems. But there are a lot of problems that can really be solved by just data integration. So making sure that all the relevant data points are easily available and also like data visualization. Even with that, you can solve a lot of problems and you don't necessarily need machine learning for this. But a lot of companies now want to implement machine learning or do something with AI just because it's like such a buzzword, honestly, in, in the last few years. And so I think it's that, that's also like why it's super important to keep kind of like the end goal and uh, in mind here. Yeah. And whenever you spoke about like the pretty dashboard companies, I guess one that kind of comes to mind, but one company that uses their data correctly, I think would be YouTube. Yeah. Because whenever you have, you search up something, all of your search results are kind of relevant. Eight times out of 10, they're spot on to what you're looking for. And even your recommendations, like that's all about their algorithms. I think that's like one of the good companies and also like Google search, obviously. And it's also, I think YouTube is actually an interesting example because it also shows how differently kind of like you can use machine learning. You, you always have to have a goal in mind. And so, for example, if you compare YouTube with maybe some other platforms that also recommend you certain uh, like resources or media, let's say let's take Spotify as an example. So YouTube really has, at least that's my hypothesis, <laughs> they, their goal is to uh, suggest you things that are like highly relevant for you based on the things you you heard before. But most of the time they're within the field you look for. Like it's, they rarely show you something that's totally new, encourage you to explore a lot of new topics. And so for example, Spotify, um, just a, a, as one example, they suggest you usually also things that are out of your like usual, I don't know, five artists or genres and they want to encourage you. And so I think that's also really interesting how you can use machine learning, such different outcomes depending on the goal you have in mind. Yeah, and I didn't even think of Spotify and I use that on like a daily basis. But whenever you're at the end of your playlist, they have like recommendations for various artists you're interested in. But then also they'll just, I think personally, they recommend artists that are kind of like not really what you're at, but kind of like on the far end of what you listen to. 
So I feel like they're a little bit more risky than like YouTube because YouTube, you're going to click out of the video, but Spotify, you might give it like four seconds to listen to. Yeah, that's true. So the last part I kind of want to talk about is A-B testing, and we mentioned that a little bit earlier. So what can you A-B test and what's the process for performing it? I think A-B testing, like the most typical example you can think about is like a website or an application where you change the color of a certain thing, for example, and then you want to test, okay, is blue or red better? Like that's, I think, kind of like where A-B testing started or where one of the most common things to use it. But of course, there are like many more applications. You, you can use it in apps and, and other things. And you can also actually test like whole programs with it. Many tech companies, of course, are based on like a, a website or app. But especially the one, for example, ride sharing or also like delivery services, it's based on an app, but things also happen outside the app. Like there's a person um, picking up your food and then delivering your food and, and having to go through tra- traffic or ride sharing. You have to meet your driver. And so I think those things can definitely IB test, but it becomes more complex because there are a lot of like more noisy factors in there first of all like two different people might meet you have to think about like how do you set up your a b test so that you can measure things correctly and then it's also harder to sometimes understand the results because there might be like some interactions going on between those two sides of the market and you might not really be able to understand those so i think especially those tests when it comes to two-sided marketplace where two different sides of the market interact with each other it's uh, much more difficult to set up a good IDB test. And you really have to think about how do I divide up the different groups? Do I want to do this just randomly? Do I want to maybe do this on, in a specific market? And really think through what makes sense there and how you can get the best results. But generally, I, I would say a lot of things are testable. It just gets more and more complex if things happen in like real life and different parties interact with with each other and can influence uh, the results. Yeah, and that makes sense. And it's also about like considering what use cases you're trying to test and also like what you're trying to break and then figure out how can I make this unbreakable? Yeah, and I think the most important thing here is also to pick one or two success metrics. I think a mistake you can make is just wanting to measure everything, wanting to measure how this uh, affects the one side and the other side and how this affects your conversion rate, but also your engagement rate. And also, and then it, it just becomes really difficult to set up an A-B test that lets you measure everything. So I think typically it's better if you have one success metrics, maybe some other things that you also want to measure, but you don't really make your decision uh, based on this. And then try to find the best solution to measure this specific metric. Yeah, definitely. So the last question I have is, do you have any advice for someone pursuing a career in data science? I think what is really important in data science and what often, especially in university, doesn't get enough attention are the soft skills. Like technical skills are key, of course. Like you, you need to understand data. You need to be able to do data cleaning and exploration, do Python or, or SQL. But I think what really differentiates you from others and what really makes you a successful data scientist are the soft skills. Rarely you can just build a model and it will be implemented right away. You usually have to present it to someone, either a product manager or or your, your manager or someone else in leadership. And here it's really important to communicate your results. 
typically those people might also be less technical than you are. So it's also super important to be able to explain very technical things to a non-technical audience. Communication skills, definitely like one thing that's super important. Also, typically as a data scientist, you have to work with a lot of other people and stakeholders. You have a product manager, you have engineers, you might have designers, uh, you might work for the marketing team. And so you definitely need to be able to be very open to that kind of teamwork, communicate with a lot of different people. You will have a lot of meetings. I think that's also something I didn't expect <laughs> when, when I joined, um, but you're actually like working very cross-functional, which I personally enjoyed, but for those types of things, it's very important to, to have good soft skills. And so I would recommend everyone to also invest sometimes in, into getting those skills. Yeah. And I think soft skills, like you're saying, they are very important. I would say it's almost like 60-40 maybe sometimes. It just really depends on your position. But if you can't really explain your technical knowledge, it's not going to be useful in the room of people. Like it, that's just point blank. So like you're saying, kind of just being able to communicate well and work with others. If you can't work with others, there's not going to be a really company you're going to like excel at because we're amongst people all the time. Maybe not right now because everything's on Zoom, but typically you're in a room of people and you're working together towards a common goal. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jacqueline, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was super nice to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation between Jacqueline and I, and that you learned a lot of things about data science and just the various applications that you can apply data science to. Thank you for listening to the Multi-Passionaire Podcast. Feel free to give a review on Apple Podcast and follow our Instagram at Multi-Passionaire. Stay tuned for a new episode twice a month, every Monday.